In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not there, but so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. One of the coolest parts about hosting a podcast is uncovering different aspects of Disney history that had rarely been surfaced, or at the very least is just not as much in conversation as certain topics in Disney discourse. I've interviewed authors, folks who have worked for the company, and today I'm bringing on historian Bethany Bemis, who is a museum specialist at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. It's that Smithsonian institution that's been around for nearly 50 years. It's a staple in the city that is just rolling in history. And what's really cool about Bethany's new book, which is entitled Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror Mirror for Us All, as well as the forthcoming museum exhibit, is that she illustrates the really uh, intertwined bond that the Walt Disney Company has with different aspects of American history in terms of its presentation of topics, and in some ways how Disney is a reflection of what is going on in our country's discourse and political issues. It's a really fascinating topic, and certainly we've seen some books over the years that illustrate particular aspects of Disney uh, intersecting with American history and, and the world more broadly. One that comes to mind is uh, John Baxter's book on Disney and World War II, for instance. But what's very cool about Bethany's new title is that she really illustrates how there are so many different layers of Disney's interconnectedness with very popular American figures like presidents, as well as just very uh, divisive and and controversial and problematic issues that is facing our country as a whole. And the that this book serves as the uh, basis, so to speak, for this new exhibit that opens in April. So Bethany is going to be discussing all of that and more on this episode of Notably Disney. Enjoy. All right, on this episode of Notably Disney, I'm excited to welcome on Bethany Bemis, who is a museum specialist at the National Museum of American History. Uh, I grew up going to DC, so I, that's always been one of my favorite places there. Uh, Bethany is the author of the new book, Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror, Mirror for Us All. Love that title. Um, this will soon serve as the foundation of sorts of a new exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, today on Notably Disney, Bethany is here to join us, share our work, and Disney's really inextricable link with all things America. It's a fascinating con connection that you unravel here. Uh, welcome to Notably Disney, Bethany. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. I, I'm happy to have you here too. When I heard about the exhibit and, and the complimentary book and I know that there's a whole backstory to how the book came to be through your journal article and other research you've done over time. 
Um, I'm like, wow, this is a, a wonderful opportunity uh, for me. And I want to first orient listeners and myself to who you are. Can you talk about what your role is as a museum specialist mm-hmm. uh, and and what you do? And uh, and then a side question is your, your interest in Disney as well. Yeah. So yeah, museum specialist is not one of those jobs that you kind of think about growing up, right? Like I'm, I dream of being a museum specialist, but um, I, as a museum specialist at the National Museum of American History, specialize actually in political history. Um, and so I, I am part of a team that is responsible for um, the collections that uh, speak to all of our political history. Um, we just uh, brought in um, Jill Biden's uh, coat that she wore at the inauguration, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so everything from Lincoln's hat to um, the buttons from the last presidential election. Um, and we sort of steward them physically and intellectually. Um, and interestingly, it was that that led to my sort of academic interest in Disney. Um, we were putting up an exhibit um, called American Democracy, a great leap of faith. And there's a section of it that talks about the national narrative and whether a, a nation needs a national narrative, what should it be, how do you decide what it is, who gets to decide what it is. And while we were putting it up, I just kept thinking like, it's it's Disney World, like it's Disney World that tells our national narrative. And that came to me probably because I grew up going to Disney World. Uh, you know, I was born in the 80s. Um, I, my whole life, you know, Disney has been a thing, right? Um, It's inextricable from my childhood and then from growing up um, and then going there. And so I thought, let me explore that a little bit. And it turns out like a lot of other academics have also explored that, right? Um, And there was a whole bunch of of historiography to get into there. Um, And I really just dove in from there um, and, and kept going. And now sort of the culmination is this book and then the upcoming exhibit. So this American Democracy exhibit that you're referring to, how does that fall timeline-wise in concert with the uh, the articles that you wrote for Smithsonian Magazine on Disney in America? Because I, I recognize that there are some parallels between the topics illustrated there and ultimately in the book. Yeah, absolutely. That was about, uh, let's see, my daughter is seven. So that was about seven years ago that we put that show up. Um, And, you know, I started my research right about then. And then, you know, I took small steps towards um, sort of my bigger conclusions, right? So I, first I wrote the small article for the Smithsonian Magazine online. That sort of pushed me a little bit further to write a journal article uh, for the public historian. Um, And then once I did that, I really felt like there was just so much more you know, I had I had sort of made the point that I wanted to make in the article, but there was all this great research that, you know, can't go into 10 pages. And so um, that's when I decided, you know, I would try to, to write the book. Um, and the book actually um, came after or kind of at the same time as uh, the opportunity to do the exhibit. Um, so it's really been all Disney all the time for me for the last like two years, which, you know, isn't a bad thing. No, not at all. And and I am really interested in the exhibit. I want to ask you questions about that. I but I first I'm hoping to gather some more context on this intersection between Disney and America. And I think you illustrated that uh, briefly in, the, in your comments. But and and you talk about this in great depth in the book. But for folks who haven't checked it out yet, can you explain what you see as the the most significant parallels between? Disney as an American company and entertainment brand and ultimately the country that it's enveloped in in many ways. Mm -hmm. So when I sort of define the national narrative um, in my work, right, I'm talking about the story of America that many people want to believe is true, right? So it's the story that we tell ourselves about our past and who we are. Um, And it usually... Uh, softens some of the rougher edges, right? Because it's meant to be um, patriotic and it's meant to inspire optimism. Um, And I think, you know, Disney, as in Walt, right, 
he was a very patriotic guy. He geared a lot of the cartoons that he did early on um, towards sort of the American common man and uh, a lot of those sort of myths and folk histories that already existed, right, in America. Um, and immediately once he started doing that, um, he and his company were identified with those sort of grassroots American values. Uh, and then I think that becomes a through line, you know, from the founding of the company um, to today, where we see people going to the parks to celebrate uh, American holidays, right? That people go for the 4th of July, um, presidents go to the parks, um, and it's become this sort of American town square almost where we go to to have celebrations and then to sort of affirm our shared values and our shared culture. Well, and along those lines, you you mentioned um, a statistic from um, when you were on um, the Disney dish with Chappelle and Montesta about something like 80 something percent of all Americans have visited a Disney theme park in their lifetime, which is a staggering number, but also demonstrates that whether indirectly or or not, Disney is a part of people's lives, whether they go once and that's it, or they become major fans like ourselves. Yeah, I think that the brand recognition, you know, the statistics that I've seen, it's close to 100% across the world. It's, it's, we're at a point where, you know, you have an opinion about Disney, whether you like it or not, you've had some kind of contact with Disney, whether you liked it or not. And so whether you think that its impact on your life is positive or negative, I think at this point, we all acknowledge that it has one, right? Um, you know, to varying degrees for those of us who kind of lean into it, right? Well, and you discussed too, like this notion of, you know, American politics, American history, and then the people who relay those stories having to reconcile our unsettling past and, and those narratives that are you, you referenced, you know, these narratives that are are shifted that are perhaps a little bit more positive and joyful and distorted than what was actuality. That's a common criticism that that Disney often has in in relaying stories as well. And I guess I'm interested in in understanding how you make sense of that in terms of your own, in a sense, presentation of other presentations, right? How do you <laughs> how how do you as a historian relay the the muddiness of how other folks convey stories or experiences. When I look at sort of Disney's use of history, my question is less what, you know, Disney has left out um, or what they have twisted, but what they are trying to convey through the story, as well as what the public is both receiving and asking them for. Um, so I think a really great example of that is with Davy Crockett. Um, and, and you can sort of take that through line right to Frontierland in the parks. Um, when Davy Crockett, the, the now film, you know, then um, serial television series premiered, people, people were very critical of it, just like they are today with Disney's history stories, right? And they said, that's not what Davy Crockett was like. You know, he, he was rascally and he did this and that. And the public responded that they really didn't care. They liked the Crockett that they saw because he represented, you know, an upstanding guy who was, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps and was independent. And they wanted their kids to see that role model. So it was more important to them to see this, this value sort of packaged within the story than it was to have historical fact. And I think as a, as a researcher and a learner, that it, it's more important to me to understand what function Disney's stories are providing in our culture today, rather than, you know, spending my time asking which parts are fact and which parts are fiction, which I, it's, is, um, you know, would be more my job as a museum person, right, to present the <laughs> sort of straight history, if you will. Well, and I feel like there's, and I feel like you you would appreciate this so much because of looking at how Disney product and content is also reflective of the the decades, the era in which they emerged, right? And you you write about that with 
um, I think with the three little pigs and the resilience there with the Great Depression, but also Mickey Mouse in the 30s as an everyman and every mouse, you know, that underdog, you say, you know, representing American independence and his pluck and his, his characteristics of like some of those uh, famous personalities of the time, like uh, Charlie Chaplin, is just very illustrative of where America is at that moment and other products reflecting those parallels. Can you maybe share more about how how Disney is aimed to model what's unfolding in terms of just the general American narrative? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's two ways to take it, and one is maybe more cynical than the other, right? Um, you know, the first is that it's just kind of good business sense to like market to the mass of America, right? Um, but the second is, you know, that I really think that it stems from Walt himself who wanted to represent sort of the reality that he saw around him in an optimistic way. Um, and I think that that the company sort of still holds on to that, um, that desire to represent the best of what they see, you know, out in the culture and and with the people that are coming into their parks and it seems like that also evolves based on what the you know the trends are right like you know this you know you mentioned davy crockett earlier and you know i'm thinking okay mid-1950s there's the sense of you know it's post-war era people are seeking like you know they're moving to suburbia a lot and and you know there's this focus on like adventurism and charting new frontiers with even just you know the rise of american highways and exploring parts of the country that you couldn't so it seems like you know that character too is also kind of an illustration of where america was at that juncture of just wanting to like branch outward yeah and i think disneyland is both like a it's a product of the branching outward in that it's you know well a it wouldn't have survived without the highway system right uh which connected people to it and people wanting to sort of travel the country but it also is like this bastion of safety during the cold war right like you go in there and i think this still exists today and i think we saw echoes of it during the pandemic especially when people were still going to disney because they felt like it was a safe space um and i think it's both physically you know marketed as a safe space but it's emotionally a safe space too um and that's part of its its appeal throughout time you know but particularly during the cold war um i think when they were first getting started absolutely well and you write in the book how i'm, I'm going to quote you say with the parks that they involve quote spaces where the public can learn about the past in meaningful ways and that really stuck with me because I've always viewed Disney from not only an entertainment lens, but also an educational lens that at least, even if it doesn't provide a thorough examination of a, a much muddier topic, it, it's an entry point. And mm -hmm. I'm curious how, how you view that. And I know you framed the book in describing some of the lands of the Magic Kingdom as illustrating specific concepts, but could you maybe uh, elaborate on just that notion of, you know, learning about the past in meaningful ways? Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that that draws me to Disney um, as a public historian now looking back, so I've always been a person who um, likes to visit historic places, right? I like to go to, you know, historic homes and I like the national parks and all that stuff. And the parallel between that and what Disney provides, I think, is very similar, right? Disney creates a, a false uh, place of history. But even if it's not perfect, you know, in its historical accuracy, and, you know, to be honest, I don't know that any place ever can be perfect in its historical accuracy since we're not living in the time periods that they represent. It still might be the closest that anyone gets to like thinking about what it was like to, to live during that time period, right? So I know, you know, this is like a deep cut for Disney Park fans, but um, I'm guessing people who listen to this probably already know this, right? Like the, the representation of the sort of um, sewage along the road or along the walkway in Liberty Square, you know, is a detail that most people probably don't think about. But once you know that's there, I don't think that you can stop yourself from thinking about what it would have been like to walk down a real street with real sewage, you know, being thrown out of the window. And I think, as you said, that that those kind of details serve for many people as an entry point into 
wow, what was life really like for these people? Um, you know, and maybe pushing them off to visit a museum or to visit somewhere um, where they can learn more about the actual history and not just the sort of feeling of the time period. So along those lines, did do you at all personalize that? Did Disney World serve as that mechanism for you to learn more about history or was that always just a, a core passion of yours? I was always a history person, but I think now that I've, um, you know, looked into this, I understand that what I what I really enjoy is placing myself in the the sort of footsteps of other people. And I think that that's something that both you do at at Disney parks and sort of historic spaces. So I don't know that it was like my entry point for that, but it certainly was a place where, you know, I would pretend in my head to be you know, on the frontier or uh, in Boston, you know, at the at the tea party or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's what I love about the parks is that it almost allows each of us almost like as like institutional actors, right? We can kind of we can live those stories and experiences and 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 you explore that in, in the book too. I'm I'm wondering how you so you 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 had you know composed research on on Disney and American history. How did you kind of figure out the foundation of this book in terms of that you were going to focus on um some of these topics like you know characters as symbols or negotiation within with history in the parks like how did those different themes surface in, in your exploration of these topics so this is like real nerdy but um I'm still a researcher that uses um, um index cards <laughs> right so like when I grew up it was like you know you take one thing you learn you write on the index card and then you have you know boxes and boxes of index cards and I would sit and just sort them until like a pattern emerged for me. Right. And when it was like this big pile, it was like, oh, that must be, you know, something. Right. So um, it was kind of just like sitting with all of this information and, and waiting for the pattern to like come to me almost <laughs> to make itself known. So needless to say, I imagine you spent a lot of time at Office Depot with index <laughs> cards or I never I never moved into the like Zotero or you know any of the sort of computerized note taking. So I just I love a note card. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how I remember working on my little papers in high school and all that. Um I see I like the different colored note cards so that way I can like organize them thematically or different concepts but yeah <laughs> yeah I have to be able to resort them so I'll have a I'll have a colored like um section one right and then I can sort the different facts into it gotcha gotcha well you know th there's so many different really interesting facets in in your book and and you know reading it I'm thinking to myself that what's nice about about this book is to it, it also provides a foundation for folks who want to explore um, specific aspects of Disney history in, in more depth. So your chapter on World War II, for instance, or where you focus a lot on World War II, there was a great book by John Baxter on that. And I, what's really nice is that it, it encapsulates a lot of complex content in, a, in an accessible way, but there's also, I mean, me being an academic, like I, I kind of read it from that lens. I, I what, what I really valued was that there's a, a lot that you're trying to package in here, but there's some really, you know, uh, how should I put it, very important concepts. So like this notion of, you mentioned the presidential visits and how from the earliest days of the parks, we saw that influence from Nixon when he was a VP to you know, ultimately the depiction and depictions in the Hall of Presidents, but this notion of if presidents are investing their time in Disneyland, whether it's for political reasons to make a speech or just to, you know, in Nixon's case, go on the monorail for the first time. And there's the wonderful story that I'm sure you know about with the um, with the daughters going on the monorail and and it's like, where, where are they? Uh oh. Um, this notion of if presidents are prioritizing the Disney parks for political motives or personal reasons, it's showing that it's important in American context. That's a lot of verbiage to say, because I'm, I'm long-winded, but I, I'll get to my question. My question is, how, how have you viewed that evolution in terms of how 
Disney, how American presidents have engaged with the parks, depending on personalities, but also maybe the evolution of um, key figures like them making statements in other spaces. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Nixon does a lot to sort of set the precedent, right, for uh, presidents at Disney. And I think it really started just because he was from California. You know, that was his his district. He had an interest in its success, um, in Disney's success as sort of an economic, you know, powerhouse in Anaheim. Um, but also he seems to have really just liked it, right? Which is not, which is like a weird thing that I really actually like about Nixon, um, is that he really just seemed to enjoy his time there. Um, but I don't think that it was a sort of conscious, right, um, move on the part of Nixon and Eisenhower and Truman, um, the, the sort of early, you know, presidents that we see going to Disneyland. It really seems from what I've read that it was the hottest new place to go. Um, everyone was talking about it. And so, they all had to go. And once you get, you know, three or four presidents that have gone, it feels like, well, that's what presidents do, right? It, you know, just like they go and they throw out the pitch at the baseball game to like identify themselves with middle America. Now they take their kids, you know, to, to Disney. Um, I remember really vividly a picture that um, was circulated during Clinton's campaign um, of Bill and Hillary with their daughter and they're both like he's wearing a goofy hat and she's wearing like a Pluto hat and it's I think become such an iconic like I am an American <laughs> sort of statement um, for presidents to go there um, but also you know we see them sort of using it as a as a business space too um, a lot of the uh, more recent park visits have actually been um, to the hotels on property uh, for like political gatherings, right? So it's it's partly a sort of um, it's good for me, it's good for you, right? If I show up here and and stand in front of the castle and make my statement, and I think it's also partially just that Disney did a really good job of like creating a space where people can gather. Um, that's easily accessible and, you know, is is also a place that maybe people want to go when they're done with their meeting, right? They can then go into the park. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, that makes me think of almost this duality at times between like the genuine like Nixon loving to be at D Disneyland versus the complete opposite, which is uh, you, you mentioned like, oh, past presidents have done this, so I should do it too. A certain maybe degree of performativity in terms of like, just trying to make a statement that's really not authentic. Yeah. And, and then that makes me think, well, one of the common criticisms that some people have of Disney is that a lot of it is is fake or performative. And so I, I'm wondering how you make sense of, of that, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of it is performative, but I don't know if if that makes it fake, right? If that, that makes sense. <laughs> like, I kind of hold those concepts um, you know, apart from each other, because I think, I think a lot of us, are, when we go, we are sort of performing a, a role, right? Um, we're taking part in this, like, play of what it means to be an American. We're, um, you know, going with friends or family members and sort of, you know, I think for a lot of people being almost a different, a different person, but a different version of yourself when you, when you go there, um, which is what a lot of people like about it, right? And so I think through that performance, like we're getting something valuable, um, which is real and not necessarily fake. Um, but to your point about, you know, it being performative, there's also a bit um, when Nixon is uh, in office where he and his staff are attempting to, he's going to go on this like, tour to identify himself with the common man of America. And they just make this list of like, okay, we're going to go to a baseball game and we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. And I think we're going to go to Disneyland, right? It was just like, what would, you know, John Q. Public be doing if he <laughs> he was on a vacation in the summer? Um, and I think maybe so for him too, it was, it was both performative and meaningful at the same time. 
Yeah, it, I mean, I think that kind of uh, reinforces the argument that like it can be it can be a both and, mm -hmm. um, especially from the, the perspective of, of a politician. Um, there were there were so many. Uh, so, so as someone who just loves diving into Disney history, it's it's fun for me to discover things that that I'm not as familiar with. And and one of the um, components that that you explore in your fifth chapter is it's focused on protest at the parks for readers who haven't read it. Yeah, and you, you focus on the history of gay days um, at Disney. And what was really fascinating was I haven't realized the um, the significance behind that uh, male couple that had danced or tried to dance at Videopolis and basically were, um, refresh my memory, were they kicked out of the park? Yeah, I think they were they were removed from the dance floor and I believe also then, yeah, told to, to leave the park. But then there was a, a turnaround that happened several years later, if you can maybe share what, what happened in terms of them being welcomed in a sense. Yeah, so it's it's a really fascinating story. And it's um, actually one of the, the my favorite objects that we have in the um, exhibit. So if you'll like indulge me, I'll tell you that story too. <laughs> but the, the couple, um, it was a male couple. Um, the one gentleman, Andrew Exler, now goes by the legal name of Crusader. Um, and he sort of was known to be an activist um, in the area. And so it was not planned as a protest, but it was something that they knew sort of wasn't allowed. And that was something that they might get, you know, in trouble for doing. Um, so they went and they did it and they did in fact get in trouble. Um, and so, you know, they sued um, Disney for um, violating their civil rights. And it was a four year long legal fight that I'm still not sure I fully understand the intricacies of, but essentially it resulted in a judge saying, yes, uh, Disney had uh, violated the rights, um, but only of these two individuals, that the policy itself was not a violation. So the, the policy that they had was uh, against same-sex dancing um, or same-sex pairs. Um, they said that it was for safety, I don't see that, but you know, that, that is, it is what it is uh, when they put it in place. So actually right before they get their verdict, Disney says, you know what, actually we don't care. You know, we have this, we have this teen dance club that I think they were refreshing um, Videopolis. If I, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect on my history there. Um, and they said, what we've heard from, you know, the people, the teens coming is that they just want to dance with their friends, right? And so we're going to take this, this prohibition away. And that actually happens right before they get this, this announcement. So it didn't actually, um, the, the legal case didn't change anything at, at Disneyland. Um, but I think, you know, the fight coming, it comes in the late 80s, you know, it's already a time when the country is grappling with, you know, issues of same-sex rights and and what they're going to do. And so it really was like a time where Disney kind of had to make a decision about where they were going to go um, publicly or not. And then the exhibit tie to that is that we've had in our collection for a while this Mickey Mouse button, and it just says Disneyland on it. And, or it says, I dance Disneyland, I'm sorry. And it was in our protest collection and no one knew no one could tell me what it was, right? And I was like, well, it has Mickey on it, so I need to know what it is. <laughs> and um, through the through the donor, I traced it um, back to a connection with Andrew Exler, and I reached out to him, and he said, oh, yeah, after they won their case, they went back to Disneyland, and a, a small group of them and their friends uh, just went dancing. And, you know, you could purchase these pins at the time on Main Street, and then you would put it in a little machine and say, at, you know, it would type out what you wanted it to say. So they made these buttons to sort of celebrate like, yeah, we got to dance at Disneyland. Um, and so that's that's both in the book and going to be in the exhibit. Um, and I just think it's a lovely little story. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice, nice sentiment. And I, I should clarify an earlier comment I made in terms of that not necessarily being the history of gay days, but almost being the harbinger of how folks asserted their sexuality in the in the parks and ultimately very fascinating in terms of just the evolution there, which has been chronicled in a few spots, but just the notion of how Disney's had to mirror 
national trends and, and changes. And you talk about that with visualizing a changing America in terms of smoking at the parks and and how how women are portrayed in the parks, both fictionally like Red in Pirates of the Caribbean and 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 you know women uh, cast members in terms of the the roles that they could hold, which I um, found very enlightening as well. Yeah, I um I didn't know that right until I started the research for this book that um that women initially could not hold any what they called driving roles. Um, so they couldn't, you know, pilot a boat or they couldn't um, uh, captain the ship or, you know, uh, drive the train uh, for actually a really long time. And that, that women were sort of put in these narrative roles, um, which matched, right, what was sort of going on in the 50s in popular culture, right? If you think about Leave it to Beaver, it's like, you know, the mom takes care of you and tells you the story and the dad like drives you around, right? And so Disney was mirroring what was out you know, what was happening. Um, but then as cultures were changing, um, they had to, you know, sort of step up uh, and change as well, or sort of face the wrath of the country, I think. Yeah, well, and that's what I think makes Disney such a fascinating, almost prism of of life and society in terms of it's not stagnant, it's, it's constantly changing. And it's also, you know, grappling with with the past and, and those problematic portrayals, whether in the parks or in films. And um, the, the Mickey Mouse documentary that was on Disney Plus that debuted back in November was really great on that front. And yet people were still critical of how it still glossed over a lot. But um, I, I think that's also, it, it's nice to see now um, by virtue of, you know, historical uh, presentations at, like in your book or in other spaces, like how Disney has had to wrestle with things that are unsettling and un, unpopular. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the bigger messages that I hope that the, the book conveys and the exhibit conveys is that, you know, Disney is a really big corporation and we're sort of all watching them do this grappling, but it's something that many, many institutions are doing and some less publicly, you know, than others. And they don't have to worry about criticism every, you know, every time they do it. But um, I think it, it's nice that we have Disney in the sense that we, you know, people from other smaller places, corporations, museums, institutions um, can learn from the things that work for Disney and the things that don't work for Disney um, as to, you know, how we sort of adapt our narratives going forward, especially since we can't change whatever, you know, our institutions did in the past. Right. It's it's always that notion of of keep keep moving forward. Um, that is often uh you know a threaded in Disney um in, in various ways. Um so moving forward, your exhibit. Yes. Please share with us. I, I mean, I have so many questions, but <laughs> I guess first and foremost, so you're engaging in this really awesome research. How from from your standpoint, how does that like uh become the roots of an exhibit? Um, well, again, I sort of used my, um, my index card technique. Um, this is something that I learned from a curator who went sort of before me at the museum in that I, I looked at all the, the objects that we had um, at the museum that had to do with Disney. And I printed out little pictures of them and I just started sort of sorting them out on my floor. Um, and thinking, you know, well, it's it's really interesting if you put this with this or if you put this with this. And then um, sort of placing that within the context of my research, um, I was able to come up with sort of a pitch for the museum to say, hey, we have these cool objects. Um, I have this research and we have this little space here. So can we, can we do this exhibit with it? Um, and they were on board. And so it's been in the works for um, I want to say three or four years now. Um, and we're finally like almost at the finish line. <laughs> so for someone who who is not familiar with uh, working in the museum, it, can you can you provide some uh, perspective? Do museum specialists like yourself have an opportunity to pitch ideas to a group? like how, how do those exhibitions come about in terms of determining what's worth prioritizing? 
every museum works differently. So, you know, I have to preface it with that. Um, at my museum, there's a sort of committee that takes um, pitches from the staff, um, from different members of the staff um, and evaluates it based on, you know, what we have the capacity to put on the floor, um, what we think might be timely, what we think, you know, will round out sort of our offerings um, at the time. So, so you know, I, I had to pitch it to this committee and then they had to say, yes, we think this is an idea worth investing in um, and going forward. And how many, uh, again, this is a, just a, a, a unfamiliar question. What, how many, uh, are, are you, uh, as a museum specialist, are you then primarily, once you get the go ahead and like, this is, this is your baby, like, are you in a space where you can allocate your time and space toward other duties? Or does this become your sole focus from conception to the closure of the exhibit? Um, well, again, you know, only at my museum, but the the sort of great thing about my museum is that we have um, people who are really great at specific jobs, right? So they, once they decide um, as a museum, we're behind this idea, then they assemble a team. And so we have a team of, you know, 20 or so people um, who take the idea that I came up with and then make it like a thousand times better, <laughs> right? Um, and we have designers, we have fabricators, we have conservators and people who mount our objects. Um, we have education specialists who help, you know, get this idea sort of from my like academic brain to, you know, an eight-year-old's brain <laughs> on the floor. Um, and so I was, uh, I sort of was the project director for the project, but it certainly wasn't, you know, something that I could have pulled off myself. Um, and I've had a, just a fantastic team um, with me the whole way. And it's really sort of all of our babies, but because we have this team, we get to distribute some of the, um, some of the duties. And so, you know, I was, I was doing this while I was sort of performing the everyday tasks of working in a museum and cleaning the exhibits and, you know, putting, putting away new objects and things like that. Gotcha. So it sounds like you you all wear a lot of hats concurrently. For sure. For sure. We always say, um, you know, the title of our like collective memoir would be other duties as assigned, you know. Well, that's fantastic. So you 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 pitch this idea. How does it then translate from, from that juncture to the the opening um in April? What I, I know there was the big call that you all put out in terms of wanting to curate uh, photographs from people's experiences in the parks. But can you, you mentioned earlier that there were some specific objects in your collection that you felt like would be applicable. How, how do you make sense in terms of the composition of what the exhibit entails mm -hmm. in, in, in this particular example, at least? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't have an exhibit if you don't have great objects, right? That's what makes a museum a museum. Um, and so, I was able to look at sort of what we had in our collections, um, which mostly come from um, the Disney company at different sort of celebratory points in their history. Um, for Mickey Mouse's 90th birthday, they donated some Mickey Mouse material. For the 50th of Disneyland, they donated some material from the park. Um, and then I said, you know, if I'm telling sort of this story and, and the sort of simplified story of the exhibit um, from the book, right, is since it's only going into a thousand square feet, um, is how has Disney, how have Disney parks reflected uh, America and how are they changing, you know, today um, to keep up with sort of the changing America. So um, it's separated into sort of temporal halves, right, if you will, there's sort of what was Disney like when it first opened um, and how are, you know, how, what, how is it changing today? Um, and so if I didn't have objects that I thought already spoke to um, those sort of larger ideas, um, I went looking for them. So one of the things that, that we have now in our collection is a, a t-shirt that Bob Gurr wore um, when he was in, he was representing the Walt Disney Company um, at, at LA Pride um, in, I think, 2018. And I, uh, I Facebook messaged him and I said, can I have your t-shirt? And I didn't think he would respond. Right. But you have to take a shot. 
And I, I said, here's my professional email. Like I promise I'm legit. Can I <laughs> t-shirt? And I got an email the next day that said, if you, if you're serious and you want my like old t-shirt, yes, you can. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's part going after things and part sort of, there's a, a fantastic gentleman um, who has a private collection who's, you know, lending us some of his um, materials to sort of fill in the gaps for things that we don't necessarily have. Um, so the long story short is, you know, first you find all the really great objects <laughs> to tell the story. Um, and then, you know, we we write a script, um, essentially, just like you were writing a play. Um, and then I work, you know, with the editor and the um, education specialists and other curators um, to figure out how the script and the objects fit together in the space that we have. Um, so there's all these factors that go into, right, what ultimately we're able to do. Um, so it certainly isn't, you know, exactly as I envisioned it three years ago, because, you know, the realities of, of life and well, it was supposed to open during COVID. So the realities of COVID too, you know, push all these things back, but, um, in that way, it's sort of fun, right? It evolves as this, um, now this product of, of the group, um, and not just me, which is kind of fun. Absolutely. As a writer, my biggest frustration is when there are page and word limitations. In your case, you're talking about physical space, a thousand square feet. So how does that compare to, compare to uh, how, how does that compare to other uh, changing exhibition spaces in the museum? And then what what does that afford you all in terms of thinking through how much can you display? And given those limitations, um, what stories you can relay? Mm -hmm. The um, so comparatively, right, the, the most of the changing galleries in the museum are about that size. They're not they're not much bigger. Um, the exhibit that I was working in when this all started, American Democracy, which is considered what we would consider a permanent exhibit, which just means it'll be up for like more than 10 years, um, is about 12,000 square feet. So it's about 12 times the size. Um, and it it. It means that I had to really think about what is most important to say, right? Um, speaking of word limitations, right? Writing a label, um, we had, I think for most of our labels, an 80 word um, limit, you know? And yeah, yeah, I can see on your face that you, like, how would I convey this idea in 80 words? And so, you know, it's very challenging, but it's also really fun, right? Because you're like, well, you know what? You don't need that one word. And then you give it to someone else and they're like, you don't need this word, you know? And it, it really forces you to get down to the, the very heart of what you're trying to say. Um, so it's daunting, but I think, I think we're finally there. <laughs> and then similarly, in terms of the sizes of the, the objects that you're curating, I imagine it's not like um, you're having a you know, the, the Jeep from the Indiana Jones adventure at Disneyland, that would be like a quarter of the exhibit, but not really. But, uh, but I wonder how that Absolutely. also influences, I wonder how that influences how much uh, you're able to demonstrate, right? Is it, are they flat objects? Are they more dimensional? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, because there's, you know, beyond the sort of how do the objects fit in the cases, um, there's also, you know, concerns about ADA and accessibility that limit sort of where you can put things, right? I mean, you have to be able to, to get a wheelchair or some other, you know, mobility device in, and you have to be sure that everyone can, can see equally, right, uh, what you are displaying. Um, and so that all factors into, A, how things are displayed, and B, just what we can, can fit. Um, you know, the museum has um, two ride vehicles from Disneyland 1955, uh, but they didn't fit in my thousand square foot show. So I know I had to let those go. Um, it was unfortunate, but <laughs> you got to make cuts sometimes. <laughs> oh, darn. And it's not like back then the vehicles were even as big as a, as a, you know, one of the rise of the resistance vehicles, which would oh be gosh. the whole exhibit. So. <laughs> yeah. Talk about an exhibit. I, I, I'm wondering, I know you said that um, when you all put the call out in terms of seeking images from the public, and I am remiss, I should have done that at the time I saw it. I'm like, why didn't I? That's so silly of me. But you said 
Uh, you wrote about 30,000 images came in within the first couple of weeks. That's pretty monumental. So ultimately, how much did you all gather from folks? So uh, what we did was, I think we ended up having to close the call after a week um, because this was uh, a, a wealth of, of information that we were not really expecting in the sort of level that we got it in. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of emails with, you know, 10, 20 pictures each and so many stories that were just fantastic. And I promise I opened and read every single one of those emails and read everyone's stories. Um, but we had to sort of try to pick a sampling from across time and sort of across geography um, that would send this sort of give the message of the sort of the breadth of uh, what Disney has done over time, um, you know, and sort of stand in for those the other 20,000 images that couldn't be put into the show. Um, and so I, you know, if anyone's listening and their image did not get selected, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> um, but I hope that, that everyone will understand the sort of spirit of what we're going for in displaying the images that we could, um, in the exhibit. It makes me think, Bethany, is there going to be a, a complimentary digital part of the exhibit or, uh, stuff that folks can access online if they can visit in person? We are still sort of working through what that will look like. Um, you know, again, in the spirit of sort of um, accessibility, we want to make sure that a people who geographically can't access um, the information will have some sort of access to it. Um, I'm just not not quite sure at this point in time exactly what that will look like, but there will be something. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, it makes me wonder. So, kind of wrapping up um, and talking about the exhibit, how many photos are going to be displayed? Can you give a rough estimate of what that looks like? I was going to say, I should have looked up exactly how many there are, <laughs> but we we asked about 200 people um, to sign a license agreement that would allow us to use them. Um, and I think I think all 200 might be in the show, although some of them might be really tiny because <laughs> so, um, we were sort of um, using them again to to sort of illustrate how Disney has touched so many people over such a long period of time um, through, you know, I got so many pictures of, you know, this is my grandmother when she was a kid with her parents and then she took me and, you know, all of those sort of intergenerational stories. Um, and it really, it really sort of hammered home to me how important Disney parks are um, in so many people's lives. Um, you know, that, that, they really have a lot of meaning for people. And so I'm trying to do right by those people in the show. <laughs> and what are some, if you can share, what are some examples of other objects or, or items or visuals that folks may be able to expect when they visit? Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of two main um, objects in the exhibit, the whole thing is sort of themed around maps and how Disney park maps are really maps of American imagination. Um, over time. So we, we open with two uh, early maps, one from 1973, Walt Disney World, and one from 1958, I think, um, Disneyland, those sort of large fun maps that, you know, you would put on your wall and um, dream about when you were, when you were going. Um, and then we also have sort of iconic Disney things throughout time. We have the Davy Crockett, um, raccoon cap, you know, coonskin cap, um, that will be on display talking about how, you know, Frontierland was. But then also we have um, a section, a selection of mouse ears, uh, which are pretty, you know, uh, contemporary, but there are some that are from, you know, made by the Disney company and some that are made by members of the public. Um, and it talks about sort of how, how people use Disney space and Disney symbols to as part of their own identity, right? Um, and sort of take this mouse ear and say, but I really like, you know, this basketball team or whatever it is, right? Um, and personalize it and then wear it in the parks to show like, I'm part of this culture here and I'm part of this culture, you know, here in the parks too. So it's kind of eclectic. I think it'll be really fun. That's interesting to know that some of the items are actually like 
not necessarily officially Disney, but illustrative of people's connections and presentations of Disney as well. That's a different a different lens to, to walk. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to sort of show um, how the public engages with Disney, right? Because I think that that's that's part of what academia often leaves out when they you know look at Disney. They're so focused, I think, on uh, you know what Disney is telling people and what you know whether it's good or bad or this or that. And I think they miss out on how the public is really using Disney to make meaning in their own lives, um, which is in fact to me what makes it important, right, in our culture. Absolutely. Well, the maps part really gets me excited. I was talking with a fellow Disney podcaster and, and professor recently about how I grew up just designing my own Disney maps and that, like imagining what my own versions of the parks would be. See, I should have just known you Love a few that. years ago and sent that in. And like, this is what a kid's rendering of fantasy land. What, you know, what's yeah. amazing about that is that actually in our, um, in our archives in the museum, there is a drawing by a boy um and actually he's now a, a man who works at the museum but that he did when he was younger um like his rendering of disneyland and you know how how it would all map out in his head and it, i you know i think the more i talk about the maps the more i hear people saying like oh yeah you know i i had one or you know um i would you know take them home every year and and do this with them and it's interesting the the things that we sort of grab onto right and and use to make meaning that's awesome i guess to wrap it up is there is there anything that you are most looking forward to when the museum or when the exhibit opens whether it be seeing how folks engage with an artifact or something that comes out of the experience because i imagine that this this was probably like a, a really grand feeling to see something that you had imagined years ago and has have ultimately translated to a a book now in, in a physical space. Um, yeah, I mean, I am just, I am looking forward to like having people physically in the exhibit, um, but I'm also really excited for, you know, the the people whose um, pictures we were able to use to to be able to come um, and see, see their thing, their objects there. And hopefully, um, you know, I, I, I hope that all sort of Disney fans will see themselves reflected, you know, not that this is a, a show just for Disney fans, but it's it's sort of a way to say like, hey, you know, it's it's a legitimate thing, right? To be <laughs> someone who is interested in anything, right? Um, and and to use it in your own life to make meaning. And it's it's something that, you know, is worth taking seriously, you know, both as an academic and just as an individual. Yeah, I love the notion of that. Uh, well, I'm going to wrap up with some uh, just fun Disney questions for you. And these are Great. those that I ask each of my guests who I interview. Uh, no right answers, um, at least, uh, you know, it depends on who you're you know, asking. I'm, I might say your, your answer is a right answer, but uh, <laughs> these are opinions. So I have a few music questions for you, Bethany. What Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh, so we had, we would get from the library, those like compilations of Disney classics, right? So the one that we listened to the most, I think, I just remember having um, the Beauty and the Beast bells sort of song on it. Um, and my mother and I would sing that in the car, like a lot, um, probably pretty badly, but um so, so it was this sort of that, that mixed, um, almost like the, a mixtape of Disney soundtracks. Yeah. You can't go wrong with Belle. That's probably, that's in my top five favorite Disney songs. Oh, excellent. Um, uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, that's a hard one because my daughter has been asking for, like, we've been listening to the Disney park audio uh, in the car because she wants to go right so she's like pretending so which one was stuck in my head most recently oh probably the country bears um the class and I can't remember the name of it but the classic one where they're all on stage it's the, it's the bear band serenade yeah. that one. <laughs> oh, okay yeah I can see that's catchy for sure mm -hmm. what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music oh Underrated music. All right, I have to put a caveat on this and say I'm not I'm not a huge uh, film person. 
Um, but I, what was I listening to a lot of? That's a, that's a hard one for me. Underrated. You, you know, if you want to change, uh, change a little bit, is, is there an attraction that you feel has underrated music? Like that people just don't talk about as much? Oh, well, I think there's a lot of underrated attractions and uh, music, but I, well, so maybe I would go with, yeah, with um, Carousel of Progress, right? Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow is like both a, like a classic Sherman Brothers, you know, like style, great song, but also something that I like tell myself on a regular basis, right? Like it's okay. It's a big, beautiful tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I, I could see, I could say that. For All sure. righty. Okay, on the book question, uh, or two book questions, uh, what is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Hmm, probably like the one that came out the most recently would be the um, the Walt Disney World, a portrait of Walt Disney World, the Fifty Years book, mm. um, be the most recent sort of in time. Wow, oh, nice. Yeah, I like that one quite a lot. It covers a lot of ground very well. Yeah. It was beautiful too. The pictures were great. Yeah, that too. Uh, this one is a little bit different for uh, in terms of how you may answer it. If you could write a Disney book on any topic, so not your current book, what would uh, you, what would your book be about? I would love I would love to put together a book that was just people's stories about Disney, right? Like what was your most meaningful Disney moment? Um, I think that would be really interesting. I like that. Okay, and then finally, random question for you. Uh, so this is one that I haven't asked any other guest. What Disney attraction would you love to see be the centerpiece of its own major museum exhibition? Ooh. So this is your sequel. So after you do this exhibit, then you have to come up with another that is just on one singular Disney attraction because that'll be a huge sell, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I know. First of all, people will definitely love that. Um, hmm. Can I say, can I, hmm, can I say two? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. I have to say Hall of Presidents because I come from a political history background. Um, but I also think there's a lot to mine there because people really do go there and act like they're talking to the, the president. <laughs> you know, and like yell expletives at them or clap for them or things like that. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. But I also think that It's a Small World could be, uh, you know, an interesting exhibit, both from an artistic perspective, um, you know, the Mary Blair, there are some Mary Blair pieces in the exhibit that come from a lender. So that's very exciting if you're into, you know, Mary Blair. Um, but from an artistic perspective, but also from a sort of, you know, what it says about like geopolitical, the geopolitical moment um, at any given time. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. Or, I mean, it could be a mesh. It could be the Hall of Presidential Dolls and it could be all the presidents in doll format. <laughs> so it might be less creepy than like, you know, the real animatronic. Maybe. I don't know. But I love those those maquettes of, of, of the, the presidential heads. They're just so... Um, defined and um, Blaine Gibson, one of the um, you know original Imagineers, was gifted on that front. So. Yeah, the uh, the attention to detail that they put into it is is pretty incredible. I do um, I do always look to see one of my favorite things about. Um, so we have an office suit, the office suit that belonged to Abraham Lincoln at the museum, and it was in part the model for you know the suit that they use for the animatronic. And after this, you'll have to go look up a picture of Lincoln or I'll send you one um, where he's wearing his office suit and his tie is like a little bit askew. Um, and so when I go in there, I always wanna see like, is his tie, is it is it askew? Like did someone, you know, they should know that. So if you're going, take a look for me and see what it is. <laughs> there you go. Um, finally, how can uh, listeners learn more about the exhibit? and or follow your work? The exhibit information will all be at um, americanhistory.si.edu, which is the museum's website. Um, and I post most of my sort of Disney content and updates on Twitter. Uh, I'm at bbmistalesio uh, on the bird site. Great. Bethany, 
such a pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on and getting everybody excited about uh, the exhibit and your book too. So thank yeah. you again. Thank you. I can't wait. You'll have to come down and, and let me know what you think in person when it comes up. Many thanks go out to Bethany Bemis for joining me on this episode of Notably Disney. I would certainly encourage you to check out her new book. Again, the title is called Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror, Mirror for Us All. And you can check out the exhibit at the National Museum of American History starting later this April. So that's definitely going to be on your list if you are visiting the nation's capital. And as mentioned, it will be running for about a year's time. So you have ample opportunity to go out there and visit. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N Reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.